Hi, this is Ivor Bernstein, Director of American Culture Studies here at Washington University in St. Louis. Like most of us in St. Louis and beyond, since early August, my mind has been with the people of Ferguson, Missouri. As a professor of history, I believe that now it is more important than ever to carefully consider the history of race politics in this country. In my own work, I've researched historical incidents of racial violence, including the New York draft riots of 1863, which I talk about in the podcast you're about to hear. When listening again to this episode, which first aired last year, it strikes me how from Harriet Jacobs to James Pennington in the 19th century to today in Ferguson, there is this ongoing tension between the idea of a unified United States and the real-life daily experiences and struggles of so many Americans, especially black Americans. Especially important for us to consider is the role of violence in American history. Some commentators about Ferguson have tried to draw a sharp distinction between the rational, law-abiding community of Ferguson, on the one hand, and the law-breaking, violent, criminal element on the other. But, indeed, it has never been so simple, either historically or today. Violence has always been a key element of the government's relationship with the black community. Police brutality in Ferguson, part of a long, bloody history of racial surveillance, policing, and containment. Accordingly, out of self-defense, certainly, violence has had to be part of the black political imagination. And one can't always draw a clear line in that imagination between tactics of nonviolence and violence. At moments of political impatience, Take 1965 uh, at the Montgomery State House. Martin Luther King Jr. said that freedom is coming soon. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How long? Not long. That was a, a plea for a certain kind of awareness of, of history and a certain kind of uh, what I would call patient impatience or impatient patience. But far more impatient was the speech of John Lewis at the nonviolent march on Washington. Lewis said flat out, we are impatient. Indeed, in a speech that was at least ostensibly about nonviolence, he made a final reference to Sherman's armies in the Civil War. He said, like Sherman's armies, we will march across the South through the heart of Dixie. We shall pursue our own scorched earth policy and burn Jim Crow to the ground. And then finally he said, after all of that, nonviolently. So nonviolence was the theme, but violence was the powerful subtext. That's a pretty violent image of Sherman marching and burning his way through Georgia. The message of Lewis is impatience. We want freedom now. So too with the black men coming, out, coming of age in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, some are orderly protesters, some violent, some are both. Not always a clear line. All are impatient, and indeed violence is one of a variety of ways in their political imagination 
to renegotiate the suburban St. Louis racial contracts that an older generation of African Americans had come to live under. No, says the younger generation. And violence is a way to draw attention, to renegotiate those informal but potent contracts of policing and containment. It is well to go back to the 19th century and to Civil War New York in the era of American slavery to see the long-term origins of these sometimes violent racial negotiations, the war that was American slavery and in some ways still is. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome to a brand new season of Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. Here's a big question to kick off the new season. What does it mean to be an American? My guest for today's episode is Ivor Bernstein, professor of history and director of the American Culture Studies program here at Washington University in St. Louis. For today's episode, he talks about American identities in the age of the New York draft riots. Incidents like the draft riots can reveal a lot about certain groups and individuals in U.S. history, but it's also important to remember the fundamental way that the Civil War changed the identity of the country as a whole. Here's Dr. Bernstein. This is the moment in United States history and American history when the operative phrase that people use was the United States are. The significance of the Northern victory at Gettysburg, the defeat of the slave power, was that the United States are became the United States is. You went from a, a notion of plural loyalties and plural identities to at least some kind of more credible notion of a, of a union or a unity that had been confirmed by battlefield sacrifice. Bernstein is now completing a book titled Stripes and Scars, Race, the Revitalization of America, and the Origins of the Civil War. The phrase stripes and scars comes from Harriet Jacobs, author of the 1861 narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Reader, be assured this narrative is no fiction. I have not exaggerated the wrongs inflicted by slavery. On the contrary. Jacobs used the phrase stripes and scars. She wanted to create a moment of auditory confusion in the listener. Notice that stripes and scars is only one letter away from the phrase stripes and stars. But by changing this one letter, Jacobs was doing more than creating a play on words. Jacobs was saying to the triumphalists of her day, the triumphal stripes and stars patriots, don't include me in your unity until you can experience a little bit of the boundary violation, the bodily violation that I have experienced as a young woman growing up in slavery in North Carolina. She wants to create that moment where the listener says stripes and stars. No, you're not saying that. You're saying stripes and scars. Pay attention to me. Understand that I have this very particular experience of suffering. The condition of two millions of women at the South, still in bondage, suffering what I suffered, and most of them far worse. You must own the particularity of my experience and come to understand it and empathize it before you can then 
go ahead and honestly proclaim any kind of meaningful American unity. This idea of American unity was also challenged during the New York draft riots of 1863. Over four days of violence, working-class New Yorkers lashed out against a policy that allowed some citizens to basically buy their way out of the Civil War draft. But there was more going on. The draft riots are a story of the powerless against the even more powerless, of the weak and defenseless against even the more weak and defenseless. The defenseless at this time included African Americans, but the idea of who was an insider or an outsider in New York went beyond simple categories of race or ethnicity. For example, newly immigrated Irish New Yorkers had their own tenuous American identities. In some ways they saw the, the Republican Party's effort to draft an army as a continuity with the kinds of oppressions that they had experienced in Famine Ireland. So they took out their rage uh, during the draft riots on the Republican Party and its installations. They burned down draft offices. And the rioters' fury quickly took on another dimension, turning from a draft riot into a race riot. At this time, Irish Americans and African Americans lived and worked side by side in New York. But with the city in chaos, the Irish rioters turned against their black neighbors. It was almost like an, an act of self-annihilation for the Irish to attack their working class fellows, sometimes brethren, next to whom they toiled, but whom at this moment of panic, as the butchery mounted on the fields of, of the Civil War, they came to see as, as symbols of the freedoms that they were not getting. Uh, so it became this civil war within a civil war. It is with this backdrop that we turn to the story of James W.C. Pennington. Now, the first thing you need to know about Pennington is... James Pennington was an amazing guy. It's true. After escaping from slavery at the age of 19, Pennington wrote multiple books, received an honorary doctorate from the University of Heidelberg, and became a well-known and respected minister in New York. Yet, even he couldn't escape the effects of the draft riots. At the time, he was away on a teaching gig. You know, he hears about the draft riots and he flies back to New York to see how his wife and his children are doing. And uh, he comes back to his neighborhood and he sees it in ruins. Despite his insider status in New York, Pennington had to creep into his neighborhood like a fugitive, trying to find out if his family was okay. What he learns is um, very little. He's still on a hunt. He actually puts a, a newspaper ad in the New York Times saying, has anyone seen my wife? In one essay about the draft riots, Bernstein wrote that Pennington had been all but shorn of his identity. But what exactly would this mean for James Pennington in 1863? So what did it mean to have an identity in that world as a man, as a, a hoped-for citizen of 19th century American Republic? It meant being able to preside over a family, to be a patriarch. So in this sense, because Pennington had not been able to defend his family, the Irish aggressors really attacked his identity. And by forcing him into hiding, they also attacked another aspect of selfhood, having the right to be seen. And this sort of attack must have been particularly painful for a former slave. The very essence of what it means to be a slave is to be stripped of visibility. Thinking of, 
uh, the answer to the question, well, what was American slavery? It was an effort to, to separate, to scatter, to fragment uh, particularly collective displays of African-American peoplehood. After the draft riots, Pennington and others worked for greater visibility of African-Americans. But with what results? We now turn to the end of the Civil War and the dramatic funeral procession of Abraham Lincoln. You know, it would be so nice, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, a historical um, arc or storyline ended the way we wanted it to? And we want, at the end of the Civil War, nothing would make us happier, I think, to look back and see African-American New Yorkers proudly and triumphantly joining the the very symbolically important funeral procession. Actually, nine million people watched Lincoln's funeral trains wended its way from Washington up through uh, uh, New York and then and out to Springfield, Illinois, where he was buried. It was, it was one of the great exhibitions of, of, of a free people exulting in and mourning their fallen leader. But of course, that was not to be in New York. African-Americans had to struggle to get a permit from the very much white supremacist Common Council, unlike black processions in some other northern cities which went unimpeded. This one was delayed to the very last minute, and it wasn't until Lincoln's funeral beer was uh, heading out of the city, heading up the Hudson River towards Albany, that African-Americans who had been delayed and delayed finally got their permission and wheeled their small contingent, small because it had been so delayed, Pennington, who had worked so hard for that visibility, for that representation, now thinking this must have been a very ambiguous conclusion to the experience of a war for freedom. Though perhaps somewhat disheartening, this ambiguous story of struggle is an appropriate starting point for our series on American identities. Because, like it or not, these stories make up American culture. And it's these stories that many professors and students of American culture studies dig into every day. The excitement, I think, of doing the work I do is that it forces one to reflect on the big storylines of American culture, which, as I say, have often been bequeathed to us in this very triumphalist mode, this very unity-based mode, but anyone who enters into the multiplicity of American culture comes to understand very quickly that unity or union of any kind was it was a yearning, but it's one that you can't really fully appreciate unless you unless you earn it, unless you enter into the what I would call the deep subjectivity of the different groups that compose the the, uh, I mean, even to call it a fabric may be too, too coherent, the, the often ragged fabric of American culture. Here at Washington University in St. Louis, scholars across campus use this sort of deep subjectivity to look at the past, present, and future of the U.S. In the coming weeks, we'll hear from experts in music, literature, art history, religious studies, and more. I hope you join us. As always, you can find Hold That Thought on Facebook, on Twitter, on SoundCloud, and at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. Thanks for listening. <laughs>